We all know the plot of Doctor Strangelove. A US general goes mad and unleashes bombers towards the Soviet Union. His uh, crazy idea is to provoke nuclear war and to therefore force America to fight it. Total commitment, as he calls it. Because he thinks America will win. We'll have vanquished the Soviets. There'll be no more communism. There'll be a nice, clean, capitalist slate. As long as we go all the way, of course. As long as there is total commitment. Well, that's what happens when General Jack D. Ripper sends the bombers up and out. But today we look at a different scenario. Accidental nuclear war provoked not by a lunatic, but by a glitch in technology. Failsafe was a novel from the 1960s, later made into a film starring Henry Fonda, Larry Hagman and Walter Matthau, and then remade in 2000 with big names like Richard Dreyfus, Harvey Keitel and George Clooney. And Failsafe offers a scenario where nuclear bombers are up on an exercise when they mistakenly receive an order to attack, to fly onwards to Moscow and annihilate the city. And as with Dr. Strangelove, once the bombers are on their way, the horrified politicians find that they cannot be called back. So let's look at the story of Failsafe and ask how realistic was that scenario. As I said, there are two versions of it. Um, I watched the remake a few nights ago and was absolutely wowed by it. I would say it's superior to the original. So if you haven't seen either version, I would say go for the 2000 version. I managed to find it uh, streaming on Amazon Prime Video and I would certainly recommend that you check it out. So first, let's have an overview of the plot. And yes, there will be spoilers. April 16th. Where's that group of planes up there headed for Russia? Give me the president. 30 million people were witness to a live television event. Do we know what the hell happened? Group 6 is continuing on an attack course. Send out the code, we're going down below the radar. Let's talk to Moscow. That took them to the heart of their deepest fears. So a bunch of nuclear bombers are up in the air on a training exercise. It's all standard stuff, nothing at all to worry about. 
In fact, things are so relaxed that a congressman has been invited into the control room with the generals to watch the exercise, find out how it all works. He's shown the huge illuminated map with all the little planes running across it. There go our boys, circling the Arctic, keeping us safe, showing those damn commies they'd better not mess with us. All typical um, Cold War thriller fare so far. But then, a blip on the screen. Onto the map appears, as they call it, a UFO. But what is this thing? Maybe a, a passenger jet gone off course? Or could it be a Soviet missile? heading silently across the gleaming map to American shores. Well, as you all know, if the Soviets were going to launch a first strike, there'd be no point doing it with one tiny little missile. You'd be sending waves and waves of the things. So a little bit of tension breaks out, there's a bit of a kerfuffle, but then, phew, relax everyone, they identify it, it's no threat. And everyone stands down. No need to worry. The big glowing map assures us, yet again, that all is well. And whilst they're all congratulating themselves on what a fine and flawless system they have here, somewhere in the huge banks of machinery and computers which control all this leashed nuclear horror, a tiny little light starts to blink. But again, don't worry, there's a light flashing off. It's just a glitch, no problem. Get that sorted, yes sir, no problem. Meanwhile, up in the sky, the American bombers fly. And it's just an exercise though, everyone knows that. Routine, totally routine exercise. What they're doing as part of their exercise is flying to their designated fail-safe points. And that is a point in the sky, it's like an imaginary border post up in the sky which these planes will fly to and when they get there they simply circle they do not go beyond their failsafe point it's a border across which you must not go they reach the failsafe point and then harmlessly they just circle until they're called back home to base easy no problem they've done it a million times in a real nuclear war, or in a real launch, um, anticipating an actual outbreak of war, what they would do is take off, fly to their fail-safe points, as we've said, circle there in a state of readiness, and on receiving an order, they would proceed to the target. Unless, of course, it was a false alarm, or we'd managed to pull it all back from the brink of war, in which case they'd be circling at their fail-safe point and would receive the order to come home. So, okay, cool, great, nice, easy-to-understand system. You fly to your fail-safe point and you circle, you basically hang around up in the air, awaiting instructions, and those instructions will either be execute, as in go on and drop your bombs, or come back home to base. As long as those bombers don't go beyond the fail-safe point, nothing can go wrong. But that stuttering, flickering light down in the command centre, it means something has gone wrong. It meant that an order did go out to all the bombers who were up there at their failsafe points 
telling them to execute, to fly on to their targets. But, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. It's a mistake. And they realised that down on the ground. They realised it. And they were able to alert them all. Every uh, plane up there at their fail-safe points, every plane received that erroneous order. They were told, whoa, 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 stop. False alarm, turn round, come back to base. And they all got that order. Before going beyond their fail-safe points, they all got the order, calm, calm down, everyone, false alarm, come back to base. And they all turned round before reaching their fail-safe points and they all went back home safely. All except one. There was one squadron up there who didn't get the command to stand down and turn around. And that was because this plane, or this squadron rather, I don't know if that's the correct term for a bunch of planes in the American Air Force, but we'll go with squadron. Having drawn near to Soviet airspace, the enemy had jammed the radio frequency. And so this bunch of planes didn't get the order to stand down. They got the order to go ahead, fly to your fail-safe points. But they didn't get the order to stand down. So they fly onwards. They fly on and on and on. They reach their fail-safe point And they continue on past it. No one could get through to them to say, stand down, this is a mistake because the Soviets have jammed the radio frequency. So the squadron has gone past its fail-safe point, heading for its target. On board the planes, the crew take out their envelopes to see what their target is, and they pull out a sheet of paper from their sealed envelopes, and that sheet of paper has one word on it, and that word is Moscow. They are on their way to Moscow with thermonuclear bombs on board. So that's a bit of a pickle, isn't it? The generals cannot reach these planes to tell them to come back. They are charging onwards to their target, and their target is Moscow. So the generals are forced to inform the president. Uh, Sir, it looks like we might be accidentally about to nuke Moscow. And we can't reach them to tell them to come back. We can't tell them it's a mistake. But, and here's the scary part, even if the Soviets hadn't jammed the frequency, even if they could contact those planes, even if they could speak to the pilot and say, it's a misunderstanding, turn round, come home. Even if they could, the pilots would have to ignore them. That's the whole point of the fail-safe process. Once you are ordered past it, you're forbidden from standing down. Even if the president himself radios in and orders you, begs you to stand down to abort the mission, you are forbidden. Because it could be a trick, couldn't it? Nuclear war could indeed be on. America could have already been wiped out. And as you go on to Moscow to try and strike your blow against the baddies, maybe the Russians have managed to crack the system and they they send you a false order to go home. Or maybe the Russians get on the radio to you and they, it's not impossible, impersonate the president's voice telling you to stand down. No, Once you're past fail-safe, you go on 
and you do not stop, even if the president begs you, even if, as happens in the film, they get your son onto the radio and he says, Dad, please don't do it. There is no war. Dad, it's a mistake. Dad, please come home. There is no war. Even then, well, that could be some Russian impersonating your son. It could be a Russian with a gun to your boy's head. No, once you're past failsafe, there is no way out. So the planes are heading for Moscow and cannot be ordered down. So the president, in desperation, orders American fighters up there to try and shoot them down. To shoot down their own men. Horrible, of course, but it's the only way. If these guys get through to Moscow, then (laughs) the Soviets will retaliate and then we're going to find ourselves in all-out nuclear war and millions will die. So, yes, the Americans sacrifice some of their own men to try and shoot down some of their own men to try and stop this nuclear attack on Moscow. But the attempt fails. The bombers, by this point, are too far ahead and the fighters can't get in range. Okay then, the president says, bring me the red telephone. It's time to ring Moscow and tell them what's going on. In a bit of an awkward conversation, the president is forced to tell the Soviet chairman that a fleet of bombers armed with 20 megaton hydrogen bombs is heading for his capital. He begs him, please, Mr Chairman, please understand this is not an attack. So please don't retaliate. This is not nuclear war. It's simply a horrible, horrible mistake. So after lots of fury and shock and suspicion, of course, as to what the Americans' plan might actually be, the Soviet chairman accepts this is not an act of war, but a horrific mistake... And the two men, speaking over the hotline, with interpreters of course, try to work together to shoot the bombers down. So the Americans, their their fighters couldn't reach the bombers, so the Soviets send their own fighters up. And yes, they managed to knock some of the bombers out of the sky, but my God, one of them gets through. One of them is on its way to Moscow, minutes away now, with two hydrogen bombs. Every attempt to stop them has failed. Moscow is minutes away from nuclear attack. And this is where the film steps away from being just a good Cold War thriller. There is a horrible, horrible element added here to the story. It's now inevitable that Moscow is going to be annihilated. The Soviet Union can't just allow that to happen. Should I meet you in Geneva for talks later, sneers the Soviet leader down the phone. How can this ever be forgiven? You can't just wipe Moscow from the face of the earth and expect no response. The American president knows that. He accepts that. There has to be some response. And so, to avoid a full nuclear retaliation, to avoid 
nuclear war. He offers them New York. If, as seems inevitable now, our bombers will destroy Moscow in a few minutes' time, then we will destroy one of our own cities. We will drop two H-bombs on New York. That is the sacrifice offered to the Russians to avoid nuclear war. And as I say, this is where the film becomes something special. There is no Hollywood ending. There is no, God bless America, you can't touch us, we, we'll ride in and save the day. No, there's none of that. There is the unimaginable. New York is sacrificed. New York is given to the Russians so the rest of us can be spared. New York is destroyed by an American bomber. So over the red telephone, the president gives his plan to the Soviet chairman. The US ambassador in Moscow is also on the line and the president asks him to please stay where he is, in the centre of Moscow, in his office, knowing what's about to happen. Stay on the line so that we can hear you. And we're told that in a few minutes now, Moscow will be hit. And as the bombs drop, the ambassador's phone line will emit a high-pitched whining sound. And that, we are told, will be the sound of the phone lines melting. That high-pitched shriek we'll hear will be the sound of Moscow dying. And when we, on the phone in America, hear that shriek, it means the game is up. It means that Moscow is gone, and so New York must go too. I will play you a clip here from the horrible moment when the phone line shrieks. If your volume's up high, you might want to put it down a tad, because it is quite a piercing sound. Yes, Jay? I can hear the sound of explosions coming from the northeast. The sky is very bright, like a a long row of skyrockets. It's all lit up, very... I said at the beginning that I think the 2000 remake is better than the first, apart from one tiny aspect, and that's um, in the final moments of both films, we see street life in New York, we see traffic, we see people in the streets, ordinary life, of course, about to be obliterated. And in the original film from the 60s, in the split second before the bomb drops... We see a big flock of pigeons down in the street in Manhattan and they suddenly take fright and the huge flock just lifts up into the air and scatters almost as if they have some kind of animal sense that something horrible is about to happen. Now I love that moment. Humans are oblivious, they're buying ice cream, they're going to the shops, they're stuck in traffic jams. But the animals or the birds somehow know and they just take flight as if they're trying to escape but it's too late. And that moment doesn't appear in the remake. Uh, Instead, the remake, even though it was brilliant in every other aspect, it ends on a very cheesy note. It ends with the bomber pilot. Obviously he's overhead in his plane about to nuke New York 
and the wife and child are down in Manhattan queuing for the theatre to see My Fair Lady and the mum is buying tickets and she gestures to her daughter to come, come towards her. So mummy holds out her hand and the cute wee girl runs towards mummy and she's obviously a cute kid, wee blonde girl and she's smiling and she's excited and she's happy and she runs towards mummy's outstretched arms. Uh, so we see her uh, running towards the camera and that's that's where it ends with the cute blonde kids running towards the camera all full of life and happiness. And I thought that was a tad cheesy. I preferred the flock of pigeons taking fright. But that's my only complaint. <laughs> now I ask how realistic was the fail-safe scenario? My source here is the book The Doomsday Machine by Daniel Elson. It's absolutely packed with great stuff, but is often a tad dry in its writing style, so I only recommend it to you if you're hardcore. I reviewed it in the TLS when it came out, and I kicked off my review with the crazy plan outlined in the book to throw incoming Soviet missiles off target by temporarily halting the rotation of the Earth. Yep, that plan, thankfully, was never put into practice, but that shows you what kind of thinking was going on in America during the Cold War. So Daniel Elson, in his book, looks at the fail-safe notion. As in the film, he tells us that exercises were totally normal. Pilots and crew and the ground staff practised endlessly with keeping nuclear bombers in a state of readiness, and when the klaxon sounded on the base... Pilots would race to the planes and leap into the cockpit. They would practice that again and again and again. Of course, the pilots knew that when you leap into that plane and take off, you never, never, never proceed onwards to your target without an explicit order. Otherwise, you just head to your failsafe and you circle. And if no order ever comes, neither an execute nor a return, You must assume it's a return, you err on the side of caution, and you toddle on home. Now, Daniel Elson was a a nuclear nerd, I suppose. Uh, He worked for a think tank and was given access to all aspects of nuclear war planning and command and control so that he could make it better, analyse it, find errors and weaknesses. I picture him turning up at these air bases to scrutinise them, like uh, Frank Grimes from The Simpsons, all serious and solemn, turning up at an air base in the Pacific and stopping all the fun and restraining any gung-ho attitude, getting everyone to sit up straight and listen. Daniel Elson is here with his pen and notebook. And one of the first memos he ever wrote was entitled Strains on the Failsafe System. And yes, he had detected some possible weaknesses. He started with looking at the behaviour of pilots under failsafe. Yes, these pilots are intelligent and obedient and will take orders. They're not impetuous or panicky. They wouldn't be Air Force pilots if they were, of course. These are guys that you can trust to stay cool and follow procedure. But, Elson wondered, but 
they are human, after all. And isn't that the biggest flaw in any nuclear war planning? The human element? So what would happen, he wondered, what would happen if a pilot takes off and is operating under the fail-safe procedure? What if he's scrambled and told to take off? He doesn't know if it's an exercise or not. But then that's not for him to worry about, is it? All he has to do is get up there, approach the fail-safe, circle and await his order. But what if, as he takes off, he looks back down at his base and he sees it engulfed in a mushroom cloud? What if he then finds he can't make contact with anyone at the base? All communications are gone. My God, it's all gone. He just saw it himself, didn't he? He saw the flash. He saw the mushroom cloud. And here he is, heading for failsafe. My God, this must be it. And he and his crew are up there, alone, with no word from the base, no word from anyone. Is this war? Won't he assume this is war? What other proof does he need? Elson worried that in this case, an extreme example of course, but not impossible, in that case, the pilot, having seen evidence of a nuclear blast on his base, and having received no orders and finding all communications dead, might reasonably assume it's war. And he might assume that the very lack of an order to proceed is an order to proceed. If no one's giving him an order to go ahead, doesn't that imply that the commanders are all dead, everyone's wiped out, and that's why no order is being issued? I mean, look at the evidence. He was told to launch, he saw the mushroom cloud on his base, and now all communications are dead. Seems bloody obvious, does it not? But he'd be wrong. In this scenario, there is no war. Just a terrible, plausible accident. Elson tells us that pilots endlessly practiced running to the plane. When it was on alert, when it was loaded with nuclear bombers, they practiced running there, but they did not practice taking off. The drill stopped when they leapt into the cockpit because it was deemed too dangerous and expensive to have them all taxi and take off. Having them all actually leave the base and head to failsafe again and again and again would use massive amounts of fuel and manpower and, of course, maintenance. It also carried a risk of an actual nuclear detonation. The planes that Elson was observing out in the Pacific had thermonuclear bombs tucked beneath the undercarriage. Not at all how they were designed to be carried, but hey, there's no room inside these planes, these F-100s. So they were stuck on underneath. And neither were these bombs what is called one-point safe. These hydrogen bombs had a plutonium core, which was surrounded by a, a spherical web of high explosives. Having the bomb one-point safe meant that if one part of the web of explosives detonated, it wouldn't trigger a nuclear explosion. But these bad boys were not one point safe. So if there was any kind of mishap out there on the runway, let alone a botched takeoff or, God forbid, an actual crash, 
there could be, could be a full-scale thermonuclear explosion. So no, the pilots never practised actually taking off when armed with their thermonuclear bombs. What we see in the film of the pilots up there, approaching failsafe and circling fully armed, that didn't happen for the reasons just given. If they had done, Elson says, they might have acquired the habit of going through the horrible procedure, the whole launch and approach failsafe, knowing that you had these dreadful bombs with you, but then turning round and coming home. They might have acquired the habit of returning safely. But as that habit was never acquired, there might instead be a nibble of doubt in the pilot's head that if we ever actually take off, then why now? What's going on that we don't know about? Why are we taking off now? And then, of course, if he looks back to the base and sees an explosion, then my God, this must be it. I hope you've enjoyed our look at Failsafe. It's been interesting to compare it to Doctor Strangelove, of course. I think both films were released in the same year. Uh, One of them caused by madness, the other by error. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon with a donation each month. You can offer as much or as little as you please and can cancel at any time. Uh, You're not tied into any annoying contracts. Don't worry, I hate that too. So please look at my Patreon page if you want to start a contribution and support the podcast. It's on patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook under Nuclear Britain. And to my Patreons who are living overseas, I sent David to the post office on Saturday with a bunch of parcels for you. So if you're due any nuclear rewards, uh, watch out for the postman. Uh, This doesn't yet apply to Stephen Deutsch. Your nuclear rewards are currently being made up and personalised by a coppersmith. How exciting. Uh, This week, let me give a shout-out to the following patrons. Paul Maxwell-Walters, Christopher Creva, Sean Judge, Tim Westmeyer, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace and Gordy McNair. And I'll be back next Monday with another episode. Thanks for listening.